Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends. Hope all is well with you. A weekly podcast. Seems like old times, huh? If you are keeping track, this is the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast. My name is Chris. I'm a multidimensional being from the 8th dimension. No, not really, but sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? This would be episode 3-273. Today, we have a conversation about the mental aspects of competition with author Lauren Fogelman. I'm one of those annoying people that always says that running is 85% mental. And the silliness of percentages aside, one of the things I like about long distance and endurance sports is the mental challenge of it. So we're going to learn all about that. In section one, we're going to talk about the responsibility of community. And in section two, I'm going to discourse on active recovery. It's been a weird sort of rest week for me. Like I said last week, I tweaked a hamstring coming out of my last big pile of races in that last marathon and then retweaked it a couple times (laughs) in the subsequent weekends. So I decided to take some rest time this past week to see if I could sort it out, see if it would heal. And it's a strange one because I can run on it and I can train on it. But I have a fear that it could manifest into something chronic if I don't at least give it the opportunity to heal. And I've had enough of chronic injuries over the last few years. So speaking of which, the plantar fasciitis is 99% healed. It's really not a factor anymore. So you kids who are, that are fighting that nemesis, that plague to endurance runners, you should be comforted that there is a light at the end of that long tunnel. Since I wasn't training too much, I took up my second favorite hobby, which is overeating. (laughs) And through a focused campaign of Chinese food and pizza, I have gotten the belly back up over 185 pounds. But it'll come right back off once I start training again. And I've got six more marathons to run this calendar year, so I have to sort of pace myself. I tried to get my bike trainer going out on the porch, and I managed to get Fujisan's back tire patched and get the bike mounted. And I I really wanted to mount up the old Raleigh that I have. Actually, I have two old Raleigh's, and I'm trying to piece together one working one. Because on the trainer, it doesn't matter. But the stupid cheap pump that I bought is already broken, and it won't work on the Presta valves. So I have to buy another one of those. I haven't been riding the bike all summer. I haven't been riding the bike. And... You know, I'm not looking forward to acclimating or reacclimating my derriere to the trainer. The pain cave beckons. But the the good news is, is that season three of The Walking Dead is up on Netflix, and I haven't watched it yet, so I'll have company when I do get out there on the on the trainer. I rode the stationary bike at work uh, this week. Didn't seem to have any issues with my legs. And then when I came home, I took buddy for a short run in the woods and poor buddy was sick over the weekend i woke up saturday morning to him being sick in the hallway he got out and went for an adventure on friday when i was working from home so i think he ate something that probably seemed like a good idea at the time but probably wasn't with my rest week and schedule i couldn't really get him out for a run all week And he figures, the way he thinks about it, his logic, dog logic, is that we have a deal. I take him running in the woods, and then he does what I want. And if I don't hold up my end of the deal, all bets are off. And as soon as I cracked the door to check the weather, he was off for an adventure in the neighborhood. And he he ate something. The seasons are turning at my house. The leaves camouflage the trail on a carpet of gold and brown. The Canadian geese settle in the ponds like noisy school children. The woods are cold and silent except for the portentous winds rattling the dry trees. In the air is the smell of wild grapes gone by and the apples sour from forgotten orchards. 
The weaker branches fall and lay on the ground like broken skeletons of soldiers too weak to march into winter. And so, my dog and I run. It's all good. I like the seasons. That's it. Uneventful week. I've been sorting through all my writing for the last couple of years, and it looks like I have enough for three or four more books. Uh, I'm also on a write every day challenge, which isn't too much of a challenge for me because I like writing and I'm doing it anyhow. So send me your Netflix recommendations for the pain cave and any good healthy recipes you have. And on with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. The responsibility of community. The necessity of community. I have talked about before my framework for life balance, where I delineate four areas of life that you have to balance, work, health, spiritual, family. And these are just labels I use, but they encompass more than just a label. When I say family, I mean more than just those blood relatives or people that you live with. I mean community. I mean that intersection of groups that you are a member of by birth, habit, geography, or choice that are part of you and help you define your place in the world. In a perfect world, all the areas of your life would be united and complementary. Usually, this is not the case. And that is why talking about life balance is even necessary. Usually, the different areas of life compete for the same time and resources, and you're forced to balance. The act of balancing is deciding how to manage trade-offs. The only way you can manage trade-offs is to know yourself and make decisions based on a set of core values. If you don't do that, then you will be out of balance, and external forces will make decisions for you. When that happens, you will be unhappy because the balance in your life will run counter to the core values of yourself. Family or community is an interesting aspect because it intersects with all of the areas of your life that you're trying to balance. At the core, you have your family, your direct family, your parents, your spouses, your sisters and brothers and children. And these are core relationships that are important to you and your well-being. When you assess the balance of your life and try to align the necessary trade-offs, you have to look discreetly at these core relationships because you are inextricably connected to them. When these relationships break or go bad, they leave potentially a hole that is slow to heal and may never be more than just scar tissue. These relationships require some special attention. And I make it sound serious because it can be. It can also be as simple as me wanting to change my diet, but my wife having other ideas. There can be more friction in these core relationships because they are so closely tied to us. When you assess your life balance of each of these core relationships, they need special attention. Each of them is a project in itself. Because there's so much friction and emotion tied up in these core relationships, you might want to have a strategy for each one. Since in some cases you inherited these relationships, you didn't choose them, you may struggle to align them with your set of core self-values. If these relationships don't align with your core values, you can buffer those parts and have a strategy to live with the parts that do. For example, you may not agree with your brother's politics or life view, but he's still your brother. You're not going to change him, and you're not supposed to try. And unless he's evil and dangerous, you need a strategy to live with the parts of that relationship that are aligned with your core values and celebrate them. Don't spend all your time and emotional energy brooding on stuff you can't and shouldn't be trying to change. Then there's the broader community. These are the communities we join in our pursuit of the other areas of our life balance. You have community at work, you have community with your running club, your chess club, your Toastmasters club, your book club, your town meeting, your neighborhood. Why do you have these communities? Why not just practice these elements of your life in seclusion? Why do we need to join? Because it's in our nature as humans. 
we know that we are social animals. We need to commune with others, with other intellects, with other souls. This cross-pollination of communion is important to our mental health, to the quality of our lives and the quality of our life's journey. The shared norms of community create the glue that enables broader civilization. They also control the aberrant behavior of those few broken individuals that walk among us. That's why old people bemoan the loss of community norms. They see it as the crumbling of the foundation of society. Whenever horrific acts happen, isn't it always quoted, he was a quiet guy, kind of a loner, kept to himself. This creates more challenges and trade-offs in trying to balance our lives because these communities are not one-way relationships. When you join a community, it is a proactive act of joining. When you join with anything, part of that thing becomes part of you and you become part of it. Give and take, that's the nature of community. This is the challenge for you. This is the trade-off. Because by joining the community, you take on a responsibility to participate and to give part of yourself. These community commitments become another thing that wants 100% of your time. And it's another trade-off. If you manage your community commitments appropriately, you can gain more from the relationships than you give. And I'm not saying to become a taker or a user that preys on the energy of the community for your own profit. This is important because many of the self-help gurus will tell you to end your old relationships that are holding you back and create new relationships with new people who are more successful than you. In this way, you can climb the ladder of success. Looking at relationships purely through the lens of how they can benefit you or your pocket seems overly mercenary to me and not a strategy to long-term success, to long-term happiness or life balance. I'm saying that, like a good marriage, your relationship with the community should be synergistic in a way that both you and the community gain from that interaction. One plus one equals many. Where am I going with this? Why do you care? Well, the way you should assess these relationships and communities and commitments is how they align with your core values and how much synergy there is between the path you want to take in this world and the path they are cutting. Look for relationships where the benefit to both you and the community will be greater than the individual energies expended. And by benefit, I mean not just extrinsic, but the whole ball of extrinsic and intrinsic benefit that can be the fruit of any relationship. Let's get practical. What direct action can you take out of this? Well, first, just proactively thinking about your relationships with individuals and communities will move the interactions out of your emotional dinosaur brain and into your big brain so you can be more rational in your trade-off assessment when considering life balance decisions. Second, take inventory of all the relationships and communities you have. Which are the ones you are happy with? Which are the ones you are not? Which ones have value? Which ones drain value? And third, For each of these in your inventory, how do they align with your core values? Because if they don't, then you need to do some adjusting. Fourth, come up with a strategy for each of these relationships, how you're going to approach it. Look for opportunities to perhaps extract yourself from organizations or communities that align only marginally with your values or take too much from you. Fifth, Use some of that headroom that you've freed up by disengaging to find new communities that align with your values and with which you can create a synergistic relationship. Life balance is never going to be easy. It's about managing trade-offs. That's okay. It's how you manage those trade-offs that will make you successful, happy, and balanced. No one can perfectly balance trade-offs. Your goal should be to do your best at managing the trade-offs because these trade-offs, these points of interaction, are where life happens and value is either created or lost. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Lauren Foldeman, welcome. I'm glad I finally (laughs) was able to 
squeeze you into my uh, my hectic schedule here because I'm very interested in talking to you about the the topic that you're you're an expert in. So maybe you can give us the the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, first of all, my name is Lauren Fogelman, and I'm author of The Winning Point, How to Master the Mindset of Champions, as well as founder of Expert Sports Performance, working with highly driven, motivated athletes on being cool, calm, and confident under pressure for winning results. All right. And part of this, your, your big focus is on the, the mental aspect of sport. And I would guess that with the mental aspect of sport, there's, you know, there's two sides of that. You're helping people um, relieve pathologies on the one hand, and then you're helping them fine-tune and sort of supercharge on the other hand, right? Pathologies is a really big word. It means different things to different people. So I think that what I would really say is that I really help people get out of their own way so that they can stay focused under pressure. And when they're able to really tune out the stuff that's distracting to them, whether it's pain after hitting your bottom or you run into your wall, or it's being able to stay focused on this big dream that you have, that's my thing. It's all about high performance and showing you how to reach your full potential. Yeah, and that's great because what we'll see, you know, I I don't coach, but I know lots of coaches, and what we'll see is people who will go through a training cycle, for example, for a marathon. They'll go through a training cycle, and it will just be a perfect training cycle. They'll hit everything perfectly, and then they'll go to their event, and they just will, you know, not execute. They'll They'll come up way short, and we'll notice that pattern, you know, once, twice, three times. And after the third time, you start thinking, you know what? This isn't a physical problem. This isn't a training problem this person's having. Do you see that? Well, actually, it is a training problem because what's happening is they're training in a way that prepares them for continuing to train. They're not training to race. And, and okay. that's the problem. So how do, you, how do you get people mentally prepared to race, Lauren? But what, what I really do is look at what's going on. Um, how they might get out of their own way, uh, because we all have stuff that stops us. I'm a competitive rower, and when I first started rowing, I didn't know some things about myself that were going to come up and stop me too, and I recognized in order to be the best teammate I can in a boat, I had to be able to figure out how to get out of my own way also, because it was draining my energy before the race even started. So what I began looking at... Um, for myself, doing research, um, working with my clients and them getting results is not just training in a way that uh, gets you physically strong, works on your performance, your technique and everything like that, but also training your mental game while you're doing this. So it's about being able to train under pressure and for pressure, whatever that might be for you. And that's different things for different people. But if you're a particular runner and you find that you don't like to run when it's wet outside or raining, well, then you ought to be practicing under those conditions so that if it happens in the race, because we know that there's never a perfect race, you're prepared for it instead of just bonking out. Mm. So it's almost as if you're treating the, the brain or the mental aspect as another, you know, muscle set. Right, and you're doing specific training for that muscle set, so that when you need it in a in an event, you'll have it. Exactly, Chris. Uh, I actually talk about the mental muscle, and that just like you want some things to kick in, and because you prepared for it, it's automatic. You want to be able to have those responses for when the distractions arise, when something unexpected happens, when you may have some type of equipment malfunction, whatever that would be for you. And, you know, for runners, it would be either their body not being able to hold up after they've hit a certain point, or it might be something happens to your shoes in some way. So how do you deal with those things when they happen and have the plan as opposed to letting it become a distraction? that really costs you your focus as well as time. 
Well, let's talk about the pre-race or the pre-event stuff that you were talking about, where you were talking about, you know, leading up to the event, you, and maybe I'm translating this correctly or poorly, you had so much noise in your head that it would drain energy from you. When you get to the event, you couldn't execute to a, a high level or to the level you wanted to because you've, you've drained a lot of energy. And I see people doing that. I see people won't sleep, you know, a couple days before an event. Um, and, and go into the event, you know, emotionally drained, and that's terrible for competing. So what are some of the strategies to, to get to your event fresh and with the right mindset? Well, the first thing is don't start anything new the day of your event. I want you to go ahead and create a mental game warm-up, just like you warm up your body before you start to run. There's no, you know seasoned athletes are going to just show up to a marathon cold. They know that they need to warm up for 20, 25 minutes or run a certain miles just to be able to loosen up their body. Well, I also teach my clients to be able to do a mental game warm up as well where they go through the paces uh, either doing some particular movements that help them to focus their energy and really clear their mind. And they also go through a visualization where they see themselves going through their race and being able to stay focused, uh, the parts that are challenges, being able to find a new response to them so that instead of those things taking away from their performance, it just is uh, something to pay attention to, just address and move on and not hang on to it. So with the people that had this anxiety leading up to a race, what's going on is it's a trust issue. They don't trust themselves that they prepared enough or that they can perform under pressure or maybe they're going to have uh, disappoint someone or something like that. So it's all this stuff goes on, but the stuff that happens preparing for a race for them is probably how they deal with other things in their life also where mm. people are going to be watching them, judging them, um, have expectations on them. And some of them right. are about that fear of failure, but for others, it might be fear of success. Right. So you're going to teach them, basically, you know, the first thing you had to do is shine a light on those causalities, right? So you're helping them understand what it is that's causing this noise. And just by shining a light on it, you're going to take some of the fear, some of the um, the power out of those causalities, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Um, actually, just yesterday, I was talking with someone who does dog agility competitions, and she's preparing for the nationals. And she was telling me about this upcoming event that she is going to this weekend, focusing on all the bad parts about the uh, place where the site's going to be, the concerns that she has with her dog. And this is someone who is a national competitor. And what we did is we shifted around by focusing on how does your dog, you know, really prepare for this? And, and what's the strengths of your dog? And, and, and what strengths do you bring to it? And what about this event that is actually working in your favor? And, and so it was just about shifting that. And then a lot of times what is going on in our head, we, we think it's a particular problem, but usually the source of it is so far out in left field that you don't know it because you're too close to the source. And that's where working with a mental game strategist expert um, helps you to be able to really tune into what's going on so that we're not just dealing with the symptom, which is all that anxiety. We're really getting to the root of it so it just doesn't come up again. Right. And and like you said, this all spills over into, into life because if you're having this problem in this area, you've got a similar analog in other areas in your life whether you know it or not and so so some of the things that you're some of the things that you're doing to pull the fear out of these out of the events is to you know look at the positive but you're also doing dry runs and setting up routines that you know when you're doing your training leading up to an event you're going to go through this routine Mm -hmm. every time you train and then it becomes part of your training so the mental training the mental routine and the physical routine become intermeshed so that when you finally get to the event, it's all just normal, right? Right. There's nothing abnormal about it. Um, a- actually, it, uh, recently I've been working with one of the top 10 runners in the country, and 
his goal was to finally break a four-minute mile. Physically, he should have done it a long time ago. But what he was experiencing before he called me was that about two minutes into his event, he was just slamming into his walls and his and his legs felt like cement. And yeah. what we did to help him be able to get beyond that was reframe about, you know, your legs are feeling like cement because your body's working like you're asking it to and you're pushing yourself too hard. It's a normal response to have that. And the way that we strategized for him to be able to get past this was to start doing more hill runs. And by hmm. doing that and working through it with the hill runs and seeing that he can go past it, then when he was on a flatter surface uh, doing his uh, mile, he was able to not just break the four-minute mile once, but he's continued to lower his time as a result of just shifting how he is responding to his body when that lactic acid buildup starts to show up. Yep. And and that's, you know, now moving into an event, and, you know, I have some familiarity with the tactics that I'll use in an event when something like that happens. I'll give you an example, <laughs> a recent example. This previous Sunday I was running a marathon, and I I pulled out to, to pass a guy, and I my hamstring locked up at the 16-mile mark. So, but I've been doing this for so long that it's, that I've conditioned myself to no matter what happens in a race, it's okay. Now this has happened. What's the situation? What can we do? And how do we move forward? And I just ratcheted my pace back, took a deep breath, did some, you know, some meditation exercises and finished the race. My point is how you respond to events is very important within the, the, uh, the race itself. Right. And a lot of that is, is training, is mental training of saying these are all these things can happen in a race and visualizing how you're going to respond to those challenges. Right. Visualizing that so that when it does happen, you don't panic. Right. You don't jump out the window. Mm -hmm. You respond with your the big part of your brain and not your dinosaur brain. <laughs> well, it, it's not just responding. A lot of times it's about creating new response and as adults, what we try to do is we try to break habits. It takes a lot of energy to break a habit, and part of what happens when you're doing that is you're actually tuned into what you don't want to be doing. So when your brain's tuned into what you don't want to be doing, guess what you end up doing? That right. very thing. Uh, right. What I really teach about is creating a new response. So it's not about trying to get away from something and break it, but it's about how do we move towards a more ideal response or perspective about something. And that is something that creates a challenge that you can rise up to, you can work towards, and find a way that actually feels authentically yours as opposed to you doing it this way because everybody else does and that's how you're supposed to do it because how it works for you might not be the way that it's going to work for me or somebody else. So you have to find the way that really suits you best as opposed to following the crowd. Right. And you have to create a new reality, like you're saying, to replace the old reality. And I found it very powerful if you mix different things. So if I look at a race course, I'll see what there may be physical cues on the race course, like a fence or a tree or mm -hmm. a building. And I'll try to tie those physical cues to places in the race and the emotions that are going to happen. So I, I'm combining the visual, the physical, the mental, and the athletic aspects to get a more powerful alternate reality, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it's about whatever works for any person. So are you talking about distraction techniques that you use or how exactly are you using these cues? I'm talking about what we were talking about before, which is when you get to a certain point, you know that's where it's going to get difficult. Mm -hmm. And right. how do you respond to that challenge? Mm -hmm. And so ahead of time, you're going to try to program yourself to respond in a certain way. And if you can hook that response, if you can really visualize it and make it physical, it, it imprints better. It's about continuing to find what works for you and how to have that response. So if you're going to do that, it's not something that you might do during training because a lot of times people like to train with the things that they do well 
in order to keep it fun and they tend to avoid the boring stuff. So what I would really suggest is if you know that you have a certain response that you that comes up for you at a certain point, you, you've got to somehow be able to bring that into your training so that you can figure out the best response at that point and to be able to keep on going as long as it's really not a serious thing that you need to attend to, uh, right. that, that works for you. So sure. the, the bottom line is don't just look at creating the plan A, which is the perfect race. Look at all the different types of plan Bs that you need to have and have plan B and plan C and plan D for when different things happen, you know how to respond. And then, as we were talking about before, bring in the visualization also, see it happening and see yourself responding in a new way. Yep. And then when you're out there and it's actually happening, you just seamlessly fall into the right pattern um, most of the time. <laughs> Not always. I really believe that it's a process. You might have thought about it, but when it comes up, if this is something new for you, you might first go to the old response and realize what's happening. And then once you recognize what's happening, then you'll go ahead and kick in the new response. So it's not always an immediate, if this happens, this is how I'm going to respond. It's more of a process of becoming aware of how your focus shifts when something's going on physically and continuing to log it even, you know, log what the thoughts were going on, log um, what happened when you hit a certain point so that you can then figure out what the best response is for you in this situation and learn really become the expert on your own running patterns. Right. So do you have any specific tactics for folks who are listening here might be, uh, you know, out on the course for five or six or God help them 30 hours mm -hmm. um, out on a race. And when you get to a certain point, somewhere around two, two and a half hours, maybe the biochemistry of your brain starts to change and it makes it very difficult to one, avoid some of those demons, and two, to focus on excelling, right? So mm -hmm. do, you, do you have any um, any strategies or, or tactics around that? Y yes, um, and I happen to live in an area that's full of ultra runners. Familiar so with it. For them, is just, you know, the start and the warm-up. Uh, and what I would actually say is that when you're running, especially when it's distance running, you're probably going through a whole slew of emotions. You're going to have ups and downs. And and that's okay to recognize that all of these different things that happen are fleeting and you will move forward from it. Uh, some of the tactics that I work with uh, the ultra runners on is really looking at when you're feeling your pain and those cement legs and you can't run, you feel like another step is instead is to chunk it down into smaller things. You know, maybe you need to just focus on getting through this one second. What one of the things yeah. that I uh tell them to say to themselves is, you know, how much longer do they think they can go? And let's say thirty seconds is it. And say to yourself, I can do anything for thirty seconds. Yep. And and that kind of reframes and instead of saying, Oh my God, I have thirty two miles left, what am I going to do? You're just looking at 30 seconds and getting through 30 seconds, which you're probably capable of doing. The other thing that I would use as a strategy, and this is a distraction technique, is yep. to be able to count as slowly as possible from 10 down to 1. And sure. just do it very, very slowly because your mind cannot tune into two different thoughts at one time. Right. So if we're focusing on counting as slowly as you possibly can from 10 to 1, then you're really focusing on that uh, as opposed to then the pain going on in your body. And by the time yep. you're at 1, you might be past the pain. You know, I've, I've done the, the, uh, the, the flip side of that. I see what you're saying, though, because counting backwards requires more thought. Mm -hmm. I've, done, I've done the counting, just counting. Just as sort right. of a mantra, to, as just a meditation or a mantra to to get your mind off of how badly you feel. Just mm -hmm. counting the steps. Yeah, so anything like yeah. that is good good distraction now, technique. The, the one thing that's interesting about runners, um, studies have shown, 
is that newbies and recreational runners tend to do more distraction techniques. The ones who are more experienced elite as well as professional runners, what they do is, is they're constantly doing body checks. They right, are right. constantly tuning into their body for form and pacing and stride and things like that. And I want to just talk about pacing really quickly, Chris, because I think that it's one of the things that causes you to not have enough energy left for the end of the race is when you have too fast of a start. Sure. And and it's so easy to get caught up in the energy, the momentum, oh, yeah. everybody yeah. else, and then have yeah. all that self-confidence going on. And so sure. then if you have some doubt, you're likely to throw out your training plan. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everything goes off the rails fairly quickly if you get pulled out too fast. And that's another mm-hmm. newbie sort of sort of thing. Although I I still do that after 30 or 40 marathons. So, it's part of the part of the game to do that. But sometimes sometimes you know, you can get a little bit ahead is okay. Uh it's when they mm-hmm. go out it's when they really get swept away by the emotions at a big race. And and these are not necessarily negative emotions. These are positive emotions that yeah. they're getting just getting excited. I see this mm-hmm. happen to people at Boston all the time. They're just so excited to be there, and the environment is just so cool for a distance runner that they burn themselves up with positive emotion yes. before they get to the middle of the race, not mm-hmm. negative emotion. So they're trained, right. and they're mentally run ready, and they are even senior um, experienced runners, but they're so caught up in that, you know, the big ball of hype that they burn themselves out before they get through the race. Exactly. And that's actually something I go into a lot more deeply in my book. The winning point is about being able to stick with your plan, focus under pressure, and that you need to run your race, not somebody else's. Right. And, you know, we talked about distraction and and monitoring. The other thing that I like to try to do is to transcend. So Hmm. you, you know you're you're in a state of physical effort, but you can mentally sort of step out of that and be more of a passenger than a participant, if you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that'll help you get into that, that zone state, right, that we're always talking about. Yes. Basically, the zone is a combination of two things. It is about your actions and your attitude. And What you want to do to really get into the zone is to look at creating something that's going to be a high challenge for you. So, you know, you know that you're capable of doing it if you stay really focused, but you have to be able to maintain that focus because this is a stretch for you, whatever you created as your personal challenge. And the other part of staying into the zone aside from the high challenge is to be able to have the skills to be able to meet that challenge. So yeah. you know that you have the training, it's in place, uh, you have the physical capacity to be able to follow through with whatever your personal challenge is. And it might right. not be distance, it, it might be time. So it's different challenges or focus or performance. So it's different challenges for different people. Right. And it's it's just a perfect state where everything clicks and comes together at the same time. So that's, exactly. uh, yeah. yeah, that's wonderful. But, so... The last thing that I would be um, that maybe you can shed some light on for us is is how then do these skills that that you're coaching people with how do they transfer over into people's normal day to day lives and help them transform their lives for the better? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- this is actually one of the favorite things about what I do is seeing that crossover effect uh, because not only do I work with a lot of athletes, but I find that there's a lot of executive athletes who see the benefits of applying sports principles to how they work in their business for more success. And I would say that there's two things that is most important. Um, as you do these things and you begin to have the breakthroughs and the performance gains, it's going to go ahead and improve your self-confidence. And when you're more confident, then how you approach challenges shifts and you're more likely to step up to the challenge and possibly be a risk taker as opposed to avoiding confrontation. The 
other part that I think is even more important than that is that if you play it safe and you retreat when you're out of your comfort zone, you're going to wonder what if for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that to happen. That is something that is avoidable. And if you're playing a small game and you're quitting too soon in your uh, running and your sports performance, then there's other parts of your life where you're probably playing a small game. You're not reaching your full potential and you're quitting too soon as well. And, And it doesn't have to be like that. That's a whole mindset thing. And that's something that we can shift so that you're striving for excellence and you're playing to win. That is so well said, and that is exactly the power, the transformative power of endurance sports. So give us the links. How do people find you and your offerings and your book and all that stuff? The best way to find me is on my website, expertsportsperformance.com. And if you go there, I have a free video training series on the mental game and how to be able to stay focused under pressure. All you need to do is put in your name and email address and you'll immediately get the first of the video training series. And if you're interested in what I talked about today and want deeper learning on it, I would suggest that you go ahead and get my book. It's called The Winning Point. And there's a book page called thewinningpointbook.com. I will um, get your order. I'll send you a signed autographed copy. And there's video trainings that actually go with the book when I send you the copy so that um, they teach you how to deal with anger, um, with anxiety, how to deal with pain, how to be able to stay focused under pressure. Great. All right. It's been a fascinating conversation, Lauren. I'm glad we finally managed to get together. Same here, Chris. Thank you. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Active recovery, a positive renewal. I'm sure that you often hear people in our world talking about active recovery. What is it, and when does it apply? What's the theory and science behind it? What are the opportunities to use it as a tool in your endurance tool set? Well, active recovery is simply what it sounds like, being active while recovering from a physical effort. The opposite is inactive recovery, which means not doing anything while you recover. Why do you care? Because there is theory that says you will recover faster with active recovery, and there are other positive advantages to doing so. Let's Take the first most common example. You race a hard event, and in the hours and days after the event, you recover. For sake of argument, let's say you run a marathon on a Sunday. What do you do to recover on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, etc.? The theory of active recovery says that you will recover faster if you do something with your legs to get the blood flowing through the muscles. The science says that the increased blood flow will flush out accumulated lactic acid faster than if you just sat around. We refer to this as flushing out the junk. The theory is that getting the junk out lets your muscles heal faster and you recover faster. It's my experience that you will recover faster from an event if you remain active during the initial recovery days following the event. Typically, you may give yourself one or two days of complete rest if you're, if you're really beat up just to let the swelling go down. But depending on how you feel after the event, you can start some light activity maybe on the third day. And examples of light activity are swimming, easy biking, light running, walking, or any other cardio-type activity that won't stress your, your legs out. The rule of thumb here is that you want the initial recovery activity to be 50% effort or less. You're not training. You're recovering. The muscles are already broken down. You're trying to get blood to them and remind them of what their normal job is. The studies that have been done used interval workouts as the experiment, and they had one group do light recovery jogs between the reps and the other just stopped between the reps, and the light recovery group seemed to perform better. 
And it makes perfect sense to me. I know those times when I've just sat on the couch after a workout, my legs lock up. Whereas if I keep moving, they don't. In general, especially for us older folks, you want to warm up real well before any race or hard workout and then warm down the same amount afterwards. And I can't prove it, but I think that staying active following a race or a hard workout speeds recovery. I don't agree with people who advocate extended time off for recovery. I think I've heard someone claim that you should take a day off for every mile of your race. And if that was the case, I would never run. I think they're being misinterpreted, probably. I think the sentiment is to take time off from serious training and instead do active recovery. I have also found that after a long run, it is better to stay active, in general, than to sit around. If you have a long run on Saturday morning, don't sit down after you're done, or you may never get up again for the rest of the day. Keep moving, do your chores, do your errands, continue to actively live life, and your legs will recover normally instead of seizing up. The second place where active recovery can be used is during a hard workout or race. There will be times in a hard workout and or in a race where you go too hard and you exceed your threshold. And instead of just collapsing, you can recover in the event actively. Part of your training is to practice finding out what that point is where you can back off to and recover enough to pursue the next surge, the next phase of the training or the race. Active recovery in a race is something you have to practice in training. And what makes this difficult is that your body and your brain are telling you to stop. (laughs) And you're probably in a lot of discomfort. So instead of collapsing, if you can keep your legs moving and relaxed, things will shake out after a few seconds or minutes of braving that discomfort, and you can continue racing. Active recovery is a better strategy than just giving up mid-workout or mid-race, but it takes practice and focus to get through that discomfort phase. The final thing that you want to consider is active recovery for injury recovery. Staying active can have a positive effect on your healing process. For soft tissue injuries like tendonitis or fasciitis, low-intensity recovery activity can help. Remember, these are overuse injuries. As long as you are careful not to stress the injury, active recovery is a great part of the healing process. Take enough time off to let any acute swelling or pain heal, but then you can use light cardio, like you would after a big race, to get blood into the soft tissues so they can heal. This also enables a, a normal range of motion while the injury heals. The risk, if you just immobilize the injury, is that it's going to heal in that static position and create a rigid scar tissue. Then as soon as you try to extend that range of motion, the scar tissue tears and you're back to square one. As an alternative, if you keep the range of motion with light activity, the injury will heal in context of that range of motion. Again, As long as you're not doing further damage to the injury, active recovery can make the overall healing process faster, more complete, and stronger. The key is being light, and in many cases, non-weight-bearing activities that give you the range of motion without the stress. You also cannot discount the mental value of active recovery. If you're doing something, it keeps the continuity of your training intact. If you do nothing, it leaves a vacuum for you and your devious mind to think up alternatives like eating. (laughs) Active recovery gives you something proactive to focus on during your recovery, and that will keep you from going nuts. In summary, active recovery is a useful tool to use in many aspects of your endurance lifestyle. As always, you have to fight your inner demons and balance that active recovery without doing too much too soon. Active recovery if deployed correctly, can help your training, your racing, and, of course, your recovery. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. 
Well, I don't really know what to do about this hamstring tweak. It's just a low-level ache, and it doesn't really affect my running unless I push. I was hoping to turn in a few weeks of solid high-mileage training, incorporating the Denver Marathon and then race the Fort Myers Marathon, but I have to be careful not to do any permanent damage because I've got six more marathons to run before Boston. I'll play it by ear, but if easy running is what I've got, then easy running is what I'll do. I'll take it day by day, but the training window for Fort Myers is closing. Of course, I should have some decent fitness from all the racing I did over the last couple months over the summer, so you never know. I need to transition to trail running, though, for a few weeks in preparation for that indie marathon in December. No worries. I'll take what my body gives me and have fun with it. This weekend is the Groton Town Forest Trail Races, one of my favorite races. I should be back from a road trip uh, by Sunday, but I'm not racing. I'll go over and volunteer. Amanda, who we have interviewed here before, said she might swing by, too. She's in Massachusetts now. I have my uh, work blog functioning, and I'm pumping out posts on it, and I'm trying to integrate some of the social stuff from this experience here into my work life. And you have to be careful with this stuff. People will use it against you. You'll get comments along these lines uh, like, hey, you can't be too busy because I see you had enough time to start your own blog, right? Like you're wasting the company's time. It's the risk you run with all companies. Anytime you try to do something new, you're going to run up against well-meaning people who are wary of change. It's not that they are bad or even wrong. They're just like anybody's, and they will attack anything foreign that invades the body. It's normal. And that's all I'm saying about that. Being from Boston, I'm pretty tired. I don't get much sleep because our sports teams are always in the playoffs. And I'm forced, year-round, to stay up late watching exciting playoff and championship games. So what do I think about when I'm out running? Life, love, death. I'm that shy, smart kid in the corner of the class. You may not have noticed me. I'm that kid you chose last for anything involved in gym class. I'm that kid. Maybe at some point you'd look over and wonder what was going on in that kid's head. Well, if you had ever wondered... What strange thoughts darkened that kid's countenance and what that kid was brooding on? Well, my friends, this is it. It was Poetic Monologues for the Run Run Live podcast. Sleep well. Ciao. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, You can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao!